Minnesota, we have this thing called winter here. <laughs> there was a sense way into the, the 20th century that we're kind of on our own here and we're able to sort of do our own thing without too much interference from national forces. And we can kind of make our own society. And people did. Hello, I'm Jeff Cabaservice for the Niskanen Center. Welcome to the Vital Center podcast, where we try to sort through the problems of the muddled, moderate majority of Americans drawing upon history, biography, and current events. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Lori Sturdivant. She is an editorial writer and columnist for the Star Tribune of Minneapolis, which is the largest newspaper in Minnesota. Her particular beat is state politics and government, and she is the author, co-author, or editor of numerous books, most of which are about Minnesota and its politics. Welcome, Lori. Well, good to be with you, Jeff. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. I particularly wanted to have you on the podcast because you are a co-author with former Senator David Durenberger of his 2018 memoir, When Republicans Were Progressive. Uh, Senator Durenberger died in January of 2023 at age 88. So this is, in a sense, his last testament. Um, let me start by asking you something about yourself. Where do you come from? Uh, how did you come to Minnesota? And how did you come to the study of Minnesota politics? Well, I'm originally from South Dakota, near Sioux Falls. My parents were small business people. I went to college in Iowa, co-college in Cedar Rapids, where I'm proud to say I've been on the, the board of trustees for many years. And I uh, came to University of Minnesota to, to be a graduate student in journalism, but in the hope of landing a job at the Minneapolis Tribune, which was the newspaper of my childhood. My parents subscribed to it in eastern South Dakota. And I was uh, very lucky to land such a job at age 22, and I just stayed put. And then after a while, noticed that all the top editors had at one time or another covered the Minnesota legislature. Uh-huh. So I raised my hand to do that, too, in 1978 and 9, and that uh, I, I got stuck there. <laughs> the rest of my career had something to do with state politics and government. I think as a South Dakotan, uh, coming from a state where state government is really quite weak, was then and is still, to see uh, a state where state government is vigorous and actively engaged in trying to solve people's problems and unafraid to use progressive taxation to do that, that, in, that impressed me. Well, terrific. Senator Durenberger had described politics in the 1960s and 70s as having been very much of a boys club. And I wonder what it was like for you as a young woman to be covering this all-male activity in a profession that at that time was still largely male-dominated as well. Well, I arrived just as all of that was changing. The 1971 Minnesota legislature, 201 members had exactly one woman. 1973 had six. 1975 had something like about a dozen. We were, we were making changes rapidly, and the same thing was happening in the Capitol basement where the Capitol Press Corps functions. By the time I got there, there were three or four other women, and actually well, one of them just passed away last week. Um, so I was part of a, of, a, of a growing wave, but I wasn't the first, and I was appreciative of that support. Those of us, uh, both in elective office and in the basement, really became good friends with each other as we struggled with uh, what was, yes, a male-dominated institution. Oh, that's great. Um, you had been the author, co-author, or ghostwriter of 10 books before you teamed up with Senator Durenberger for this uh, memoir. Can you tell me something about your authorial career in addition to your journalistic career? Well, I was lucky enough to be asked in 1998 to help a very uh, um, dear former governor who was becoming quite elderly and had lost his eyesight, a, man, a Republican named Elmer L. Anderson, invited to help ghostwrite 
his memoir, his autobiography, and he was a gem to work with, became a very close friend. And he encouraged me to do more of that work kind of work, and I was pleased to do it. So indeed, one after another, I've been able to do book projects. Uh, Only a couple of the books have been in my name as the prime author, as the, the, the principal author. Many of them are by some politician with Lori, and that usually means ghost, a ghostwriting arrangement is in play. Who were some of those other politicians or political figures that you worked with? There's a, a local civil rights leader whose name your audience won't recognize probably, named Harry Davis, who was very important in the Twin Cities in, in the civil rights movements of the 60s and 70s. I did two books with him. Arvon Fraser is a name that uh, uh, you, some of your listeners may remember. Arvon was an early feminist leader in both Minnesota and nationally, and her husband, Don Fraser, was a, a member of Congress and then was Minneapolis's mayor for 14 years. The name Pillsbury is a household name, and I did a book called The Pillsbury's of Minnesota. That was one by Lori with a politician, so a different arrangement. And and uh, the politician was George Pillsbury, who was a, a longtime state senator and activist in the, the the Republican Party, only to switch and vote for for Democrats at the end of his life. Oh, uh, I, I could go on. There's a long list, but the the, the name that would be most I think uh, prominent for for your listeners would be the Dernberger name, which was the book that we did that was released in the fall of uh, 2018. And how did you come to collaborate with Senator Dernberger in writing his memoir? Well, I had covered him from the beginning, really, of my political career. My first campaign coverage was in 1978. I wasn't assigned to him. I was assigned to Al Kui, who became our governor, who just died recently. But I got to know Dernberger in that campaign as he was leading the ballot in Minnesota. It was a, a, a year that we look back on now and call the, the Minnesota Massacre. That's the name the Republicans gave that year, and it sort of stuck. We had had a, a, a Watergate-inflated DFL majorities in the legislature and, and a lot of Democratic strength. But then Humphrey died and Wendell Anderson committed the political faux pas of appointing himself to the U.S. Senate, which was a no-no in Minnesotans' minds. And the Republicans really cleaned house in 1978. And that was when Dernberger won, leading the ballot in Minnesota after a, a kind of a, a, an unusual start. He started out running for governor, wound up running for Hubert Humphrey's seat in the U.S. Senate after a bruising DFL primary left the DFL party quite sorely divided that year. So how did you and Senator Dernberger go about putting together the memoir? It does seem that you used archival research. And it also seems that he had a very good memory for a lot of <laughs> politics, aided by you, I'm sure. Well, it was really a, a collaboration. I, I like to write memoirs with a message. That's how we always described this. And that's what this is. The message being the story of the Republican Party that really produced Dave Dernberger and that he tried to represent, to bring to Washington and how he saw it fade at the end of his life. A, par- a party that was proudly progressive in the Theodore Roosevelt meaning of that term, the notion that the political operations government has an obligation to serve the needs of average people, not just the, the, the needs of, of the, the uh, ruling class, but to really be the, the ally of average folks and, and also to be a, a protector of the environment, which was big for both Theodore Roosevelt and Dave Dernberger. Those were the ideas that, that nurtured young Dave Dernberger uh, through the the, the, the uh, intermediating figures that I describe in this book, with Harold Stassen being a prominent one, Dave then tries to take those ideas to Washington, beginning in 1979 when he goes to the U.S. Senate. So let me give uh, an overview of Durant Berger's career for those who might not be familiar with him. 
David Durenberger, as you say, was an exemplary specimen of what used to be called a progressive Republican. That was a species that once thrived, particularly in places like Minnesota, but is now largely extinct. Um, and he was first elected to the Senate, as you said, in 1978 in a special election to complete the unexpired term of legendary Democratic Senator Hubert Humphrey, who had died earlier that year. And Durenberger was then reelected in 1982 and again in 1988, leaving office at the start of 1995. Um, he was born in St. Paul, Minnesota, and grew up in Collegeville, where his father was a coach at St. John's University. He graduated from that university in 1955, and then the University of Minnesota Law School in 1959. Dave Durenberger first ran for the Senate on a message that, as he put it, government should be both compassionate and effective, and to do so, it must operate as close to the people as possible and function as a purchaser rather than a provider of services. And his priority areas in the Senate uh, included high quality public education, uh, affordable health care, environmental protection, particularly combating acid rain. That was a big issue in Minnesota, uh, accountable government and what he called a fair business friendly tax code to pay for it all. Uh, he was a pioneer in efforts to combat climate change and also led the way in removing barriers for women and minorities in federal law. Uh, he was also the Republican committee author of the Americans with Disabilities Act. He recalled in this memoir that it pleased me to be seen as the go-to Republican senator by advocates for equal rights and social justice. Now, he was a fiscal conservative. Uh, he was also among the early advocates of charter schools. Minnesota was the first state in the nation to authorize them. But I think most people hearing his self-description uh, and his record and priorities would think it's strange that he was a Republican or that a Republican would call himself progressive. Um, and he was, in fact, among the last of his kind. Uh, indeed, he served in the Senate long enough to witness the events that led to the progressives being, in effect, driven out of the Republican Party. He recalled that at the time of Ronald Reagan's inauguration as president in 1981, uh, there were 17 progressive Republican senators watching that event. But by 1996, all four of them had either departed or were retiring. Uh, and of those two, of those four, excuse me, uh, two, Jim Jeffords of Vermont and Arlen Specter of Pennsylvania, would eventually switch parties, while a third, Indiana's Richard Lugar, would lose to a more conservative Republican primary challenger. But what's remarkable about this book, um, When Republicans Were Progressive, uh, as you just mentioned, Laurie, is that it's not just a memoir, but really a history and an evocation of the whole progressive Republican tradition, focused on Minnesota, but encompassing the national tradition as well. And it begins really not with any of Durenberger's personal story, but with Harold Stassen's Harold election Stassen. as governor of Minnesota in 1938. Yes, exactly. And Stassen was 31 years old at the time and so became known as the boy governor. Uh, later generations would remember him mainly for his repeated unsuccessful and increasingly embarrassing attempts for a run for president of the United States. Uh, and he did so while wearing a toupee uh, that the Washington Post's late Marjorie Williams described as stubbornly, proudly wrong, topping his great head like a sullen possum that had been dipped in bronze. <laughs> did you ever uh, meet Stassen? Oh, yes, I did. But only in, the, of course, his later years when he was doing those repeated presidential campaigns. But as I came to know Minnesota's political history, I came to really admire Harold Stassen, who represented a reformer in Republican ranks in the 1930s and was, uh, in, I think, by all accounts, a, a very charismatic figure, able to end the reign of our farmer labor party. We used to have 
three political parties in Minnesota, the Farmer Labor Party was in the 1930s, most of the 1930s, the dominant party during the Depression years. The Democrats were then our smaller third party in Minnesota. But then Harold Stassen comes along and it actually embraces much of the New Deal, but tries to perfect it by getting what he perceived as cronyism out of government ranks, professionalizing government, making this, the, the, the rhetoric that you quoted about uh, from Dernberger about his notions about government, making government effective, making it work well. That was Harold Stassen. And uh, you can draw a direct line from Harold Stassen and, and to, to, to Dave Dernberger's thinking about government. Yeah, one of the great virtues of this book is that it does kind of recover Harold Stassen for us as the political innovator uh, who really exci- excited a whole generation of Republicans in the 1930s. Um, in the telling of your book, uh, Stassen made an immediate impression on national politics with the fresh, appealing Republican response to the distress of the Great Depression. He rejected both the laissez-faire ideology of a previous generation of Republicans and the left-leaning cronyism of the Farmer Labor Party, which, as you say, was a third party in those years. Uh, it actually eventually merged with the Democratic Party in 1944 so that Minnesota's Democratic Party is technically the DFL, the Democratic Farmer More Labor Party. More than technically. The name stick. <laughs> More than technically, yeah. The name has stuck. You go on to say that Stassen sold a generation of followers on the virtues of an efficient, professionally run government, friendly to organized labor and responsive to the needs of the downtrodden. Though Stassen left state politics when he joined the Navy in 1943, he cast such a long shadow that this book might have been entitled Stassen's Line. Mm-hmm. I used to give a talk to Rotary Clubs and the like about Stassen's Herald's Line, because you can, through personal relationships and political philosophy, you can draw a pretty direct line from Harold Stassen through several Republican governors. One of our most liberal Republican governors was Luther Youngdahl in the, in the late 1940s. The governor that I was close to, Elmer Anderson, also one of the most liberal governors the state ever had. Right through the 1990s with Dave Durenberger in the U.S. Senate and, and Arne Carlson in the governorship. And there it ends. Yes, it does. And that's when Arne Carlson, I guess, left office in 1998. That is the end of Stassen's line. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Stassen personally recruited a lot of those progressive Republicans that you oh, had yes. mentioned. Elmer Anderson was governor from 1961 to 1963, and Durenberger later served as his in-house legal counsel. And another was uh, Harold Levander, who was governor from 1967 to 1971, for whom Durenberger would serve as chief of staff. You knew these men quite well. How, how similar or different were they personally? Oh, I, you know, everyone has their own distinctive traits. The, the more you get to know them, the more you see those things. Uh, but in terms of, of commitment to uh, public service as public service rather than self-aggrandizement, I would say they had that very much in common. Uh, even the, the the biggest egos of the bunch, I think, were there for, were in in public public life for the right reasons, for the reasons of, of genuine for reasons of genuine service. That was a strong ethic in Minnesota, and I think it's bred from some some uh, political scientists have called the state's politics uh, historically anyway moralistic. There's a moralistic strain in this progressive Republican Party coming out of Norwegian Lutheran and, and German Catholic strains that come together. Uh, the, the, Catholic, the Irish Catholics in, in St. Paul tended to be Democrats, but the German Catholics where Dave Durenberger grew up were, were more likely to be Republican, and they, they got along well with the Scandinavians who had a, a very strong sense of, of public service as a duty. Uh, you know, I don't see this phrase in your book, uh, but I'm curious as someone who's been in Minnesota for a long time covering it. Um, 
Is the phrase Minnesota nice something that people actually say in Minnesota? Or is that just people outside Minnesota who say well, that? Well, people, people certainly in Minnesota are aware of the phrase. And and we understand it to have a, 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 a sort of a dark side. A, there's a strain of hypocrisy about accusations of Minnesota nice. But there was this sense that, uh, that I'm describing that I think comes out of a strong, some strong religious traditions that um, uh, we are public service is uh, to is a, is a sort of a duty. It's it's what citizenship requires. I sometimes described it as the, the sort of the marriage that happened here in the 19th century between the congregational Yankees, the people Yankees who came here with a, a strong sense of, of town meeting, citizen governance, rejecting uh, the uh, the monarchy and the authoritarianism. We are a New England state in many ways, but that New England population was soon after the Civil War reinforced by an influx of Scandinavians and Germans, and particularly the Scandinavians more so than the Germans, I think, were, were very interested in, in democracy. The oldest democracies in the world are in Scandinavia. So it, it's, uh, uh, there was a, a desire to have a citizen-run, citizen-led governance here. And then we have the, the happy thing of that Minnesota, at least for, uh, for most of its history, was seen as a remote place. We have this thing called winter here, <laughs> and it keeps us a bit isolated from time to time. There was a sense way into the, th- the 20th century that we're kind of on our own here, and we're able to sort of do our own thing without too much interference from national forces. And we can kind of make our own society. And people did. So uh, you're getting at a very important theme of the book, I think, which are the factors that allowed progressive republicanism to thrive in Minnesota, at least from the 1930s through the late 90s. And the foreword to your book was written by Norman Ornstein, who's a longtime political analyst, formerly of the American Enterprise Institute who grew up in St. Louis Park, which is a first-ring suburb immediately west of Minneapolis. And it piqued my interest that St. Louis Park was also where Al Franken, the former comedian and U.S. senator, grew up, as well as New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman, Harvard philosopher Michael Sandel, the filmmakers Joel and Ethan Cohen, collectively known as the Cohen brothers, a lot of very distinguished people. That's right. And, And they all knew each other, and there was something going on there. There really was. As long as I'm on that subject, Tom Friedman, who grew up there, wrote that in 1971, the year he graduated from high school in St. Louis Park, Minnesota's Governor Wendell Anderson appeared on the cover of Time magazine, holding up a fish he had just caught under the headline, The Good Life in Minnesota. That was 1973, was but yes, okay. the time about right, yeah. Okay. I, I actually have that here on my desk. I can pull it out here for you. Oh, okay. terrific. And, and Time called Minnesota the state that works. And Friedman's childhood senators. Wendell oh, and the fish, here you have it. <laughs> oh, fantastic, yes. Um, Friedman's childhood senators were Democrats like Hubert Humphrey, Walter Mondale, and Eugene McCarthy but the congressmen he remembered were moderate Republicans like Clark McGregor, uh, Bill Frenzel. And Norman Ornstein's grandfather was close to Humphrey, but he admired Minnesota moderate Republicans and policymakers like Elmer Anderson, Arnie Carlson, Harold Levander, Jim Ramstadt, and David Durenberger. And a lot of these names won't be familiar to listeners outside of Minnesota at any rate. But Ornstein believed that politicians from both parties lived by what he called Minnesota political values of fairness the need for and value of compromise, decency, and civility. My peers and I took pride in our Minnesota culture, one that transcended any partisan divide. Minnesota Republicans, by and large, were pragmatists who married their moderate conservatism with decency and a drive to solve problems by working across that divide. And Friedman added that growing up in Minnesota gave him and his contemporaries a deep conviction that politics can really work and that there is a viable political center in American life. 
Um, you've named some of the factors that contributed to that kind of political culture mm-hmm. and want to list some others that come to mind? Well, I think Tom's description is, is pretty accurate. And, and the real question in for the modern era is, has, have we been able to sustain that? And there's there's real doubt about that. We, our politics here in Minnesota have been nationalized. Changes in, in media, the media landscape are certainly part of that. Changes in the way we fund campaigns, certainly part of that. I think the period, the period after World War II, when people came home from, when that generation, uh, the greatest generation, we sometimes call it now, when they came home from World War II, they, they brought a, a sense of idealism and, and optimism. They had just seen this country do something really big together and succeed at it. And I think felt good about their op- the opportunity to address other problems as well. And that carried over to the the young people that began to populate both the Republican and the Democratic, the DFL party after the war. I, I like to think of the parties then as center left and center right, but not so far apart. And a lot of personal relationships, again, the state's population in those years was probably only about 4 million. Lots, that's a, a size of, of population that allows for lots of personal relationships at the governing level. And that was certainly the case then as well. We're up to about almost 6 million now, so we're not that much bigger, but my, there have been a lot of changes. Yeah, Thurnberger, and you pointed out that a lot of those idealistic returning veterans who were Republicans came back to Minneapolis and formed the Citizens League, which actually was originally called, I think, the Good Government Group or something to that effect. And that seemed to him very important, as well as a very important expression of the era. Yes, well, it was an idea factory. And, and it sort of generated Minnesota-based, sort of home-brewed, homegrown ideas about how we could do government differently here. And a lot of the Durnberger ideas about um, uh, using government as a purchaser of services rather than as, a, as a, 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 a performer of services, a lot of that came from the Citizens League. That was also part of the stew of the time. You'll you recall that at that time, Richard Nixon was talking about federal revenue sharing, some of Durnberger's ideas attached to that as well. I know Harold Devander, for whom Durenberger worked very much, thought that revenue sharing was the right way to go. Use the powerful fundraising engine of the federal income tax to raise revenues that then can be spent under local direction. That that had a lot of appeal to these Republicans. That is a theme to which we will return. Okay. But you'd mentioned okay. that one of the legacies of having been settled by New England uh, and Scandinavians was the tradition of participatory democracy, small town meetings, and this translated into the maybe outsized importance of state government in Minnesota. I'll mention one other thing about our state government that was that made us a bit different in those years. Beginning in, I think, 20, 1913, Minnesota had a nonpartisan legislature. That changes in the early 70s. But during that period, uh, some of the worst of partisanship stayed away from state government. Now, during a lot of that time, it's also the case that we were not redistricting on a regular basis, like many states. And so the, the place, the legislature became more rural than it should have been and kind of hidebound in many ways. Um, uh, but the, the, the fact that the legislature stayed nonpartisan in, until the 1970s, I think, made a difference in, our, uh, in the political atmosphere in this state. It's so a, a recurring question. Should we try that again? Because it has, uh, the, 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 there's a certain nostalgia for that time as a result of, of the fact that people didn't have, legislative candidates did not have party designation after their names on the ballot. 
So uh, just to be clear, did people run as members of particular parties, but then did not identify as such when they were seated in the legislature? They were in the legislature, they would caucus as either liberals or conservatives, and they were free to run with the backing of a political party or not. The ballot would not indicate one way or the other. Now, by the end of this period, um, most legislators did have the endorsement of one party or the other. The parties were, were becoming more active. But there were some key legislative leaders during that period who prided themselves on staying away from the political parties and never ran with, with uh, any kind of a connection to either political party. There's a fellow whose name was Rosenmeyer, who's, who's uh, revered as one of the leaders of the legislature in this period, who always stayed far away from the political parties. Interesting. It's another peculiarity of Minnesota that it has the largest state Senate in the country, and I think the second largest legislature overall. I think that's right. And that is part of our New England roots. And there have been proposals over the years to change that, and they fail because uh, there's a a, a seen to be a virtue in the ability to campaign with shoe leather, to be out door knocking. the, 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 The tradition of Minnesota politics is as you're a candidate for the legislature, you walk your district, you knock on doors, you speak personally to your constituents. I'm writing a book right now about a man named Martin Sabo, who was a member of Congress for 28 years, but before that, he was a very influential leader in the Minnesota legislature, and he, he door knocked 12,000 doors every fall. Impressive. You had mentioned Al Kui, who alas died in August of this year, just one month shy of his 100th birthday. He was another of these moderate Republicans um, who served first as a member of the Minnesota State Senate and then for 10 terms as a member of the U.S. House and finally one term as Minnesota governor. And it particularly stuck with me that his grandfather, Halvor, had immigrated from Norway to the United States in 1845 at age 11. And then while working as a hired hand on a farm in Wisconsin, had a real epiphany when he read Harriet Beecher Stowe's book, Uncle Tom's Cabin. And this led him to help found the Republican Party in 1860, and then join the Union Army to fight against slavery. And you'd mentioned this earlier, but there's an observation in your book from Minnesota native uh, Daniel Elazar, who's a political scientist at Temple University. And in his telling, moralism in politics emphasizes the commonwealth and the public interest. It says government is legitimate as long as it is a positive force in the lives of its citizens. It values rather than scorns politicians as agents of the public good, but also demands exemplary conduct from elected officials. And this seems to be the influence of both the religious and, in a broader sense, the moralistic tradition in Minnesota that you've been describing. Well, that's exactly right. And the Halvor Kui story is interesting. We didn't have a big rush of Scandinavian immigration until after the Civil War, but there was a trickle, and Al Kui's grandfather and my great-grandfather were among those people, and they uh, uh, they were very anti-slavery, very much so. And in the case of, of Halvor Kui, he almost lost his leg at Antietam, uh, and, and almost lost his life, let's put it that way, too. But he lived long enough to see his baby grandson, Al, before he died. And and uh, was a big influence on that family's his his founding of the farm near Nurstrand, Minnesota, established the family, and I think the farm still is in family hands today. And it also struck me when I was talking to Al Qui that he would have had this grandfather who had seen him, who was born in the 1830s. So between you know just that one family, you can really go a long way back into the country's history in just a few generations. Oh, that's right. Yeah, there's a lot of Minnesota stories. I could go do a lot of Minnesota leaps like that, how, how really young a state we still are. 
Yeah. So um, there are a lot of Americans, particularly Democrats, but some Republicans too, who look longingly at the political cultures of the Scandinavian countries. Mm-hmm. And as you said earlier, uh, off camera, uh, your husband is Dutch, so you've spent a lot of time in Scandinavia through that connection as well. Um, and to some extent, Minnesota shares some of the characteristics of those cultures. It's cold and it's full of Scandinavians, obviously. <laughs> there um, you go. <laughs> And and probably, you know, again, the need to survive that lousy weather uh, reinforced some of the communal aspects of Minnesota Mm -hmm. politics. But it's also like the Scandinavians, not just in its long tradition of democracy, but in being relatively small. As you said, even now it's fewer than six million citizens. And it's historically been largely ethnically homogenous. So in 1960, just 1.2 percent of its citizens were people of color. And to what extent did those characteristics contribute to the state's political culture, do you think? Well, actually, that's something I think about a fair amount. When Wendell Anderson held the fish up, we were much more of an all-white state. The, the, the non-white population was very small in Minnesota, and that's no longer true. We're still, you know, we have a, a smaller non-white population than many states, but it's probably up to about 25% right now, would be my guess. And in the, in the, if we were to do a census right today, that's probably where the number would be. And that's a big change in a short amount of time. And you have to ask whether some of the difficulties we've had in functioning together can be attributed to that. I'm I'm curious, and I would love to talk to some sociologists and and other experts, academics, about that, about what what change that has meant for us. But yes, there there is that, that parallel. It's interesting. A few years ago, a delegation from Stockholm came to Minnesota to study how well we had assimilated, that was maybe their word, not ours, our, our Somali refugee population, which is about 60,000 people now in Minnesota. The sense is that, that the Somali refugee population in, Scandin- in Sweden had not been as successfully integrated into society there. And they thought they had something to learn from us, which makes us feel good, of course. But uh, there is there is a, a, some struggle around uh, how do you become a multiracial society with the kind of history and outlook on life that, that the, the Scandinavians and the, uh, the Yankees brought to us. Yeah, we're still working on all of that. Interesting. A syndicated columnist writing in the 1970s uh, attributed Minnesota's continuing habits of independence to a vigorous and varied industrial base, much of it locally owned and controlled. And by that time, many of the state's best known industrial firms were publicly traded, not family owned, but family members connected to these companies still resided in Minnesota and were Mm -hmm. deeply engaged in many cases in civic affairs. And they included the Daytons of Dayton Hudson, which is now Target, the Pillsbury's of the Pillsbury Corporation, which I think is now part of General Mills, uh, the Bells and Crosby's of General Mills, the Millens of Cargill, uh, the Knights of 3M, the Heffelfingers of PV. And Tom Friedman, again, recalled that when he was growing up, those leading Minnesota corporations were pioneers in corporate social responsibility. And they believed that it was part of their mission to help build cultural and civic institutions, well, like the Guthrie Theater in Minneapolis, for example. And I wrote a lot about that in the book, The Pillsbury's of Minnesota, which came out in, in, in 2011. And that very much was sort of the Yankee orthodoxy that that, the, that that family and the families like it brought from New England, that they were here not just to get rich, but to build a strong civic society, that that was their duty. And, and they set about doing that. And it's not a coincidence that the governor preceding the current one was named Dayton. 
the influence of those leading families in our social institutions and as sort of cultural uh, markers continues. However, <laughs> the, the nationalization of our of our of our state that, that I described earlier has has taken it has been felt in this regard. We used to have something like 20 Fortune 500 companies headquartered here, and I think we're down to about 15. Mm-hmm. And they are n- more, much more national companies than they are local ones, it seems like, in so many ways. And I'm not sure that the philanthropy that, that Ken Dayton and others made a strong show of here, we had something called the 5% Club, which meant that corporations were donating 5% of their before of their profits to, to, to charity. I don't know that that exists anymore, at least not in the same way that it did. So again, there's, there's been some erosion in all of that. But the obligation, though, of our business community to, to help build this state, sort of a pioneering sense. It's what I alluded to when I said a moment ago, we're still a young state. That attitude is still kind of with us, I'd, I'd like to submit, that we still have a sense here that we are building something. We are all engaged in a project of, of creating some kind of a society, and we each have a role to play. This subject of, of regional elites is one that's very interesting to me. In fact, there was a recent essay in the New York Times by Thomas Edsall called A Hidden Reason the Cities Fall Apart, uh, which really spoke to this. And Edsall pointed out that many of the nation's decaying, dysfunctional cities like Baltimore, St. Louis, and Cleveland um, have suffered from well-known forces like white flight, the decline in manufacturing, also to some extent the nationalization that did away with local bank branches, for example. But he also observed that another less obvious factor has been what he calls the erosion of the local establishment and the loss of civic and corporate elites. Until the late 1970s, virtually every city in the United States had its own network of bankers, corporate executives, developers, and political kingmakers who dominated their private associations, golf courses, and exclusive downtown clubs. And for all of their multiple faults, he continues, they had one thing in common, a shared economic interest in the health of their communities. And he quotes an expert who observes that big anchor corporations played a key role in civic life in metro areas, not just in terms of corporate donations to nonprofits, but also in bringing to bear leadership to revitalize cities. This used to happen all the time in Detroit, Cleveland, St. Louis, and the Twin Cities. Well, and I would submit that there's still some of that here. We have not lost all of that. But I think other places, Edsel's analysis is correct, that, that that has been a major change in a lot of American places. And the sense that each region is sort of its own ent- economic entity and is on its own and in, in competition with other regional entities, that sense is still here in Minnesota. Not maybe as pronounced as it was 30, 40 years ago, but it's still here. I'm not sure how strong that sense exists in, in other parts of the country. And in terms of that urge to participate in civic affairs, it's interesting the prominent role that you give in your book to civic organizations like the JCs uh, and the League of Women Voters. These are nonpartisan organizations, you write, but they were builders of civic leadership capacity, offering their members experiences that instilled in them a spirit of community service. And they schooled their members in creating and maintaining the working relationships that participatory democracy requires. Certainly true of those two that you mentioned. Both the JCs and the League of Women Voters were active in recruiting candidates for all kinds of offices and, and very effective. And something else that strikes me as different from the current political scene um, is how organized the Minnesota Republican Party was. And you had this whole network extending from 
the Teenage Republicans League, the Young Republicans League, the College Republicans, the Minnesota Federation of Republican Women, the Minnesota affiliate of the National Council of Republican Workshops, which was largely women-dominated, it doesn't really exist anymore, Mm -hmm. as well as sort of loosely allied business and professional Republican men's clubs. Uh, There were organizations like the Elephant Club for Top Donors, which ran a speaker series, and the neighbor to neighbor still does okay, and the neighbor to neighbor program of grassroots fundraising, and the Minnesota Republican Party, even at the time that David Durenberger was getting started uh, in his political career, had a staff of thirty five people, which is very large, but yeah. as you said, reflected the state party's decision to emphasize grassroots organizing and person to person contact over ma- mass market messaging. I think that was an important aspect of the party's success, really. Well, and all of that has diminished, though the Elephant Club still meets and I think has Ari Fleischer coming in to speak in a day or two here. So and there's still some of that on the DFL side as well. But all of that has eroded in in, in you know, palpable ways. Uh, when I was first covering all this, somebody told me that Minnesota was the breakfast meeting capital of the of the country. <laughs> people were always being summoned to some sort of a meeting at seven thirty in the morning, <laughs> like it or not, and off you'd go for uh, your daily dose of civic affairs before work began. Your workday began. There used to be a lot of that kind of thing, and that's usually the Citizens League breakfasts were big deals and used to really pack them in. They don't. They don't have breakfast meetings anymore that I'm aware of anyway. Um, So there, but yes, there was a a lot of that kind of thing. It it may be that that during the the long winter months, we needed something to do in these parts. I think it mattered though, that we were, and still are in terms of our political organizing, a precinct caucus state. You need people to show up on a cold winter's night to participate in a precinct caucus. And the parties knew that that their enterprise really depended on getting those people to turn out. So just the, the fact that it, getting people to turn out for a caucus meeting is a, a, a different kind of connection than getting them just to show up at the polls or mail in a ballot as we increasingly have mail in elections. And I think that made a difference in our overall participation in all kinds of politically associated grassroots activities. Yeah, uh, you actually write in your book that the Minnesota Republican Party was a grassroots party built from the bottom up. Uh, The precinct caucus was the biennial town hall meeting to which all were welcomed and many were put to work. Party leaders encouraged community-level task forces around the issues of the day. Their members were prepared to participate in party platform discussions and encouraged to be delegates at the next-level Republican conventions, counties or legislative districts, followed by congressional districts, and the state convention. Um, does so, that organization? Many thousands of people would be in, uh, so would be involved in one level or another that every year. It builds a, a, a big apparatus of people who have uh, some sort of sense of personal ownership of our political apparatus. And you know that really made Minnesota, particularly the nineteen sixties, different from a lot of Republican parties around the country because. You know, one of the great disadvantages the Republican Party had in that era was that it didn't have grassroots strengths. That was the Democratic Party's strength nationally with its grassroots reach, particularly aided by the strong labor unions of those years. Uh, Republicans mostly relied on a small cohort of big money donors. Do you suppose that all of that organization um, helped keep the Republican Party in Minnesota moderate? It probably prolonged the life of the, the progressive wing of that party. Yes, I think so. The fact that, for example, in 1982, in the governor's race, the more moderate candidate won the primary was a bit of a check on what had been the the drift at the Republican caucus convention system towards something, someone more conservative. Um, 
it's interesting because as it turns out, the fellow that was endorsed as the more conservative turned out to be in his later years, much more liberal than any of those people at that convention, but they didn't know that at the time. So when when given a chance in a primary setting in 1982, the moderate Republican won, but in 1990 in a primary setting, the, the conservative candidate one only to to lose or to, to to drop out when a sex scandal arose just days before the election. We've had some interesting ones here, Jeff. The more things so, change, the more they yeah, stay so the same. So that's how Arnie Carlson, the last of the progressive Republican governors, and are in this telling. That's how Arnie gets to be governor. He actually came in second in his primary in 1990, but the the guy who won the primary dropped out. Hmm. So you wrote uh, that. In the late 1960s, that period is now remembered as a creative and constructive period in Minnesota state government, a testament to the quality of governance provided by a Republican governor and a Republican-controlled legislature. 1969 was the last Republican trifecta that Minnesota has seen in now six, uh, going on 50-plus years. It's, it is 50-plus years. Well, maybe there's some cause and effect here, too, because nowadays at a time when the Republican Party has largely turned against governance, that sounds like alternative reality political science fiction. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. These were very different Republicans. It should be noted that at, at the end of his life, Durenberger was no longer a Republican. He very openly backed Hillary Clinton over Donald Trump in, in 2016 and was you know, very openly rooting for Joe Biden in, in 2020. So the question does arise, well, were these progressive Republicans just Democrats all along? And did they finally come to reconcile their identity with their political label? But one of the factors I think that did Mark um, Durenberger as maybe on the center right side uh, of the spectrum was his strong belief in federalism. And there's a passage where you write about Harold Levander, um, who shared this belief in federalism. And you said uh, he was at heart a believer that the nation is best served when state governments are allowed to be as effective as possible. Uh, Levander appreciated the role the federal government can play in the nation's economic development, including the rural electrification program and its citizens' income security. But he was wary of federal overreach. And one of the other things that Durenberger appreciated about state governments was that most of them had to balance their budgets every two years. In that sense, they were more fiscally accountable than the national government. And, and this sentiment, I think, Durenberger clung to his entire uh, uh, adult life. He would have said the same thing at the end of his life when he was a Democrat as he as he did earlier. And the fellow whose uh, biography I'm writing now, Martin Sabo, a Democrat his whole life, would have said the same thing. When, when you have had, as we have had in Minnesota, by and large, effective state government, it uh, makes one think, well, why not give the state more authority, not less, but I, I think we also would have, in the case of Durenberger, an awareness that a problem like climate change, which he cared about deeply, uh, that that is not a problem that states alone can solve. That if we can't have a patchwork of different state differences here. This has to be actually an international solution. And so, but certainly in this country, it has to be addressed by the federal government. So he they, he was discerning about what kind of problems are right for the states to take on education, and it would be one he he liked. The, a certain amount of state control over health care. Health care was his really favorite issue at the, toward the end of his life. Um, but he would also, uh, he, he would say the federal government has to do its part, but the, he was he would have a lot of confidence in state governments, even during a time when for many years, up until this, this past session, Minnesota state government was very prone to gridlock. We had 20 plus years of, uh, di- of divided state government, politically divided, and, and the, the, the gridlock was, has been a problem in Minnesota. And until this year, when we 
had a DFL trifecta and suddenly let her rip in terms of progressive legislation. Well, you know, divided government is a problem when the two sides are too far apart and there aren't enough people in the center making deals. Yeah. But, you know, you and Durdenberger also pointed out a factor that allowed that kind of deal making in those days, which is that both parties had a stake in both rural and urban regions. And Republicans, at least in the 1960s, controlled the Minneapolis City Council. Republicans have not been competitive in urban environments for a long time. But the DFLers also had a really tight grip uh, on the Iron Range, which is mostly the rural mining districts in the northeast of the state. And likewise, Democrats have very little presence in rural areas now. We've had a big geographic political realignment. And it's not one that I think is in Minnesota's favor, because I'm a believer that we do best when we aggregate our resources across rural and urban lines and, and try to solve problems together. And climate change, I think, is a case in point. We need the agriculture sector. We need the northern uh, lakes tourism sector. We need everybody at the table if we're going to be addressing climate change in an effective way that doesn't cause a lot of economic dislocation. To have such a strong partisan division between urban and rural Minnesotans is not in anybody's best interest, I don't think. So I've been, uh, as I write columns still occasionally for the Star Tribune now, I'm in retirement, I do often lift up this theme that that our rural-urban divide, which has been exacerbated by the way we do political campaigns in the state, it's not helping us. It's, it's a, this state has, has had to always aggregate its resources to get a, a kind of a synergy going that, that allows us to, to function at, at a, a level that's a little stronger, a little more dramatic, a little more effective, I would argue, than a lot of other states. And, and we, if we lose that capacity, we're, we've lost a lot. And there's a, a, an emphasis in the book on one Minnesota, the mm-hmm. idea that the state's rural and urban interests are intertwined and... Uh, dependent upon each other. And this actually led even to things like the Minneapolis Symphony Orchestra, I think, renaming itself the Minnesota Symphony Orchestra. It's no coincidence that our ball teams are all called Minnesota Twins, Minnesota Vikings, not Minneapolis or St. Paul. Uh, That's interesting. Uh, Our our current governor, I should say, Tim Walz, has now won two terms with his campaign theme being one Minnesota. Yeah. And actually, I, I also found it rather touching that in your book, you alluded to a saying of Paul Wellstone, who, of course, was a very progressive DFL senator, which is that we all do better when we all do better. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So a a lot of the book is about what happened in the Senate when Senator Durenberger went there. Uh, But again, continuing on this theme of progressive republicanism, the National Journal used to keep this graph of the number of senators from both parties who overlapped with each other and the distance between the most conservative Democrat and the most liberal Republican. And when Durenberger first arrived at the Senate, that was 29 out of 100 senators. Um, So that was actually a pretty fair faction of the Senate. By his final two years in the Senate, there were only three people, including the senator who fell in that category. Mm -hmm. And after that, there were simply none. Both parties are now polarized and at this point more widely apart than any time since the era before the Civil War. Well, that's right, and and that that all that that change figured in his decision not to run again in 1994. Now he had been sanctioned by the Senate for essentially padding his expense account. I believe that was in 1991, and a lot of people thought that the reason he didn't run again was that he was embarrassed by this sanctioning, and I, I, that while well, that did sting him, and he still had trouble at the end of his life talking about it with any kind of coherence. I thought. Nevertheless, he was very clear on in in our conversations was his sense that he was losing effectiveness because there were so few senators 
like him, trying to, to bridge gaps. He was telling me stories a lot about Mitch McConnell being in his face, telling him, don't you dare work with the Democrats on health care or voting rights or whatever was the issue of that day, because McConnell would make his life miserable if he did. And and uh, he felt constantly kind of under siege from the, both the, the left and the right in Washington. He didn't have the cooperation he hoped to have with Hillary Clinton on health care in 1993 and 94, but he certainly had resistance from Bob Dole and others in the, the on the Republican side. They didn't want to give Clinton any kind of victory, even if it would have been good for the American public. And that really offended Dave Dernberger. He was so concerned that, that he had lost his effectiveness that it was for him that the right decision was not to run again. Yeah, um, he did to some extent blame both sides for this decline in comity. He actually greatly objected to the Democrats having refused to confirm Robert Bork um, yes. as Supreme Court justice. Um, he thought the Senate's role of advice and consent was fairly limited and their ability to overturn this uh, recommendation for ideological partisan reasons was quite limited. That was sort of seen as original sin with regard to court appointments, and you can you can draw a line from that one all the way through to where we are today on on the very partisan reaction to Supreme Court appointments now. But one of the uh, objections he lodged against Newt Gingrich, for example, was that Gingrich discouraged Republicans from moving to Washington and becoming part of its bipartisan culture, if you want to put it that way. Mm-hmm. In, in Dave's telling, Newt Gingrich is kind of the, the villain of what happened to the Republican Party. If there were if there were one villain, that's that's who he would, would lift up as, as the, the person who had the most deleterious influence on our, our ability to govern ourselves together. Uh, he was very critical of Newt's approach to politics. And I think faults Newt for the attitudes that he ran into uh, in 1993 and 94 on health care, that we just can't give Bill Clinton any kind of a victory here. Our goal is to knock Bill Clinton out of office. And in terms of the bygone culture of comity, um, he has an anecdote about a Saturday session of the Senate uh, where Ted Kennedy was working to pass a bill that Republicans opposed. And that same afternoon, Senator Durenberger and Senator Dick Luger Uh, Both had sons who were graduating from Langley High School. And to accommodate Durenberger and Luger, Kennedy's opponents, uh, Mm -hmm. Kennedy moved to delay the votes on the issues they opposed until they had returned from the graduation ceremony. You don't see much of that happening nowadays. Yeah. And another time before that same uh, committee, uh, Kennedy announces the birth of one of Durenberger's grandkids. So uh, there there was that kind of of a relationship. They, they 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 were human beings to each other. So um, despite Durenberger being a progressive, he actually was quite supportive of Ronald Reagan as president. Yes, and I actually surprised me because I didn't cover Reagan. I was covering Minnesota politics then. And in Minnesota, those early Reagan years were tough years. We had uh, Al Quie was governor and he had a budget that just would not stay balanced because we kept slipping deeper and deeper into a recession that we perceived, at least in the capital basement, that that, that uh, President Reagan was not doing enough just to staunch the bleeding on that recession. And Durenberger was in Washington then. He was not whispering in my ear in the capital basement in those years. But he saw in Reagan someone much more amenable to compromise than I ever saw and saw someone that uh, was really much more in keeping with with a progressive tradition than I expected him to see. Again, in Durenberger's telling, the real turn doesn't come with Reagan, but with Gingrich. Yeah, I mean, Durenberger noted that Donald Trump revived the Reagan slogan, uh, Make America Great Again. But he felt that Reagan actually really did genuinely believe in Americans' greatness. And optimism was one of the key things that he brought 
to government. And he believed that Reagan believed the government should be limited, but could get things done, provided sufficient leadership and focus. And he writes, Reagan governed as a pragmatic and by today's lights, moderate conservative uh, who was willing to work with a democratic controlled house and a more bipartisan Senate to make progress on issues that really we don't seem able to make progress on anymore, including well, immigration, foreign relations. Reform and, and immigration reform, which happened in Reagan's years and really haven't happened in, in a real way since. Yeah, yeah, which is very true. Um, so while Durenberger was a supporter of Reagan, he believed that Reagan changed the conditions of the Minnesota Republican Party in a way that made it more conservative. And this was partly that Reagan gave a welcome signal to evangelical Christians to That's move it. into Republican circles. Yeah. It, it's the abortion issue and, and the, the, uh, the fact that in, in the Republican Party, winner take all still prevailed at caucuses and conventions. So you needed 50% plus one to control yeah, the, the, the choices. In the Democratic Party, thanks to the McGovern-Fraser changes in party operation that were enacted in the early 1970s, the Fraser there being Don Fraser of Minneapolis by the husband of my, my book writing partner, Arvon, we went to a proportional representation and, and it was possible for uh, a, a minorities to sort of get their due, but not really to control the party. Well, shift just a few people out of the DFL ranks and into the Republican ranks on the on the strength of the abortion issue. And you've got suddenly the Republican Party being a pro-life party in Minnesota. It was not that when I first started covering politics. Both parties were divided on that question. By the like by the late 1980s, ten years after I started covering politics, that was no longer true. We had one pro-choice party and one pro-life party, and we still do. Yeah, it's a real change, obviously, in the political landscape. Mm-hmm. Durenberger also noticed that Reagan brought into the Republican Party sort of proto-Tea Partiers. They weren't evangelical Christians; they were more libertarian, uh, more motivated by ideology than religion. But the same inclination of both of these groups was to combat the Stassen line uh, and that mm-hmm. tradition of moderate governance. Yes, there were there were a little gang of legislators who gave Al Qui fits as he was trying to cut deals with the Democrats and keep our budget balanced. There, there would be session occasions where these this little group would be marched one at a time down to the governor's office to try to get them in line, and they were difficult to deal with. I, I'm smiling because one of them went on to be a pretty liberal Democrat in later life and, and just died last year. But it, uh, yeah, that, that, that libertarian streak begins to appear, a tea, more of a, tea, like you say, a Tea Party anti-government strain. That strain, though, though it's, it's been present in Minnesota's modern, latter-day Republican Party, has never really been dominant, I don't think. We are still, even now, there's, I think, more of a pro-government, let's-make-government streak in Minnesota's state Republican Party than there would be nationally. But um, one of the things that you and Durenberger pointed out is that the Republican Party was never pro-tax. They were not in favor of raising taxes in every situation, but they weren't against it necessarily. And I used to know Bill Frenzel quite well because after he retired as a member of Congress from Minnesota, he came to Washington, D.C. to work for the Brookings Institution. And you have a quote from him in from 2012 where Bill said, Republicans used to be interested in not running continual rivers of red ink. If that meant raising taxes a little bit, we always raise taxes a little bit. Nowadays, taxes are like leprosy and they can't be used for anything. And so Republicans have denied themselves any bargaining power. And in that sense, Bill certainly would have said the Republican Party nowadays is less conservative than it was when it was progressive. I remember in the early 80s covering conversations among Republicans, whether they should be for raising the gas tax 
two cents a gallon or four cents a gallon, <laughs> as opposed to never, you know, cut the gas tax. That that would be the, the position today. Uh, there is quite a change about all that. And the, the no new taxes pledge that I believe was originated with Grover Norquist and his folks in, in the late 90s, that became very popular here. We had a governor named Tim Pawlenty who rode into office with that pledge and uh, gave us a, a lot of trouble trying to keep the budget balanced during his two, uh, two terms in office. So I don't want to end on an overly depressing note. Um, maybe you can tell me, as we're discussing this lost Eden of the Progressive Republican Party, what aspects of politics and society Senator Dernberger was still optimistic about toward the end of his life? Oh, you know, um, I, I think he very much appreciated what Obamacare had done for, for health care. And he felt that we were on still some kind of a a progression toward something even better, something that would really allow the benefits of health insurance to be available to everybody, but to do so in a, in a way that was uh, offered a fair amount of choice and, and a fair amount of, of local control. He, he, but he, I think he, he thought that we had made good progress there. Uh, he was very worried about climate change, and yet he would have felt good about the things that were that were have been done to show that, that when, when human beings get their act together, they can actually make a difference. He was very much involved, for example, in the getting rid of fluorocarbons that were causing a hole in the ozone layer and and get and combating acid rain. And there was some considerable success in those realms. And I think that that encouraged him that we could could and will do better with regard to, to climate change and that there was a potential, he thought, I think, for some bipartisanship on that issue. I hope that's true. In Minnesota, by the way, there is a small but notable cohort of Republican legislators who uh, care about climate change and have been willing to make some moves in that direction. So we're not, you know, he, he would have been also, I think, heartened by the, the progress this country has made on race relations dismayed terribly by what happened in this city with regard to George Floyd and, and the policing problems that continue. But but progress, he would, would point to on race relations, would have made him feel like, again, we, we, we've, we've come some distance and, and we have the potential to go further. I think that's what he would say. And he was interested in the example of, uh, I think his name is Dave Clace, who was the mayor of St. Cloud, Clace. Minnesota. Yes, yeah, and, and he was a former Republican legislator, but he would hold monthly dinners with strangers that he would cook himself to try to build interracial understanding in the city, particularly with new immigrants. St. Cloud is, is if I were to lift up a, a place in Minnesota that has experienced dramatic demographic change in the last 30 years, St. Cloud would be on high on my list. St. Cloud was a very white German Catholic place, the kind of place that, that was close to where Dave Dernberger grew up. And it has you know, got a rather large now uh, population that is non-white. Uh, I'm thinking about maybe as, bit, as many as a third of the cities. In just one generation, that has, has happened. And Dave Kleiss has been such a positive force, as have other civic institutions there, for keeping uh, a racial harmony. There was a nasty episode maybe five or six years ago of, of a Somali immigrant uh, having a mental health episode and, and stabbing a bunch of people at a, at a, a shopping center. And the fact that that community, with its former Republican senator mayor and its its newly appointed African American police chief, came together in a nice way to keep the lid on uh, racial hostilities in that town, and I was pleased with that. I think um, Senator Durenberger also retained a faith in at least the potential of civics education, civic participation, grassroots organizing. Well, he was a believer in democracy. There was just you know, th th that's. Uh, something that he w would have 
scolded his uh, former Republican colleagues to the, to the extent that he would have perceived that, that they were backing away from democracy. And when he would talk about bringing Minnesota values to Washington, that's fundamentally what he was talking about. Minnesota's strong civic participation. You know, we've led the nation in voter turnout for, I think, 10 of the last 12, or is it 11 of the past 13 presidential elections? We have a strong tradition here, a strong ethic of, of civic participation at the voting level, and that then spills over into other kinds of civic activities as well. He thinks that's a healthy way for a society to exist, and he would have thought that, that we need to continue to push for that sort of thing. I was also struck by his recollection on the first page of his preface in this book, that in 2010, he met with Russell Fridley, who was a Minnesota historian, a leader of the Minnesota Historical Society, and they had breakfast at the Downtowner restaurant in St. Paul. And Russell Fridley asked Sternberger to write a history of Minnesota Republicans. And, you know, he said that, after all, Sternberger was one of, you know, the last of the breed uh, that had started with Harold Stassen. He was someone who had knew, known all of them personally. And, you know, at that point, Sternberger was very discouraged with the way Republican Party politics were going. And he just said, why bother? And Russell Fridley replied, well, when things get bad enough, history has a way of repeating itself. And therefore, there will be a need to know what the progressive Republican tradition is to bring the state and maybe state politics from its low point. And I think that in a weird way is, is a kind of a hopeful message. Well, it is. And I always like to encourage people uh, who are thinking about doing a memoir and wonder if they should and wonder if sometimes people will say, do, is my life worthy of a book? And I always say that, no, that's kind of not the right question. The question is, is this a gift that you are willing to give to the next generation? Because leaving a record of what we have done, where we have been in the 20th century is, I think, very important to the 21st and century and beyond as we try to you know, understand ourselves, understand uh, the predicaments we are in, understand what possible solutions we might try. History is a great source of inspiration for a lot of people, and I'm certainly one of them. And so I, I've I've encouraged folks do do the book, and if, if there's some, if I have time, I'll help you. And <laughs> I have those sorts of relationships with several people right now because I, I want to see them leave a record of of this special time that we have lived through. Uh, Laurie Sturdivan, I completely agree with you, and I am deeply grateful to you to, for all that you have done to help others leave that personal record behind, uh, particularly Senator David Durenberger with his book, When Republicans Were Progressive. Thank you again for joining me here today. Thank you, Jeff. And thank you all for listening to the Vital Center podcast. Please subscribe and rate us on your preferred podcasting platform. And if you have any questions, comments, or other responses, please include them along with your rating or send us an email at contact at niskanencenter.org. Thanks, as always, to our technical director, Christy Eshelman, our sound engineer, Ray Ingenieri, and the Niskanen Center in Washington, D.C. Music